0: Hello, and welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-hosts, Dr. Reed Robison and Dr. Joe Flanders and I discuss the healing power of music. Like the consummate mental health professionals that we are, we start with our childhoods. We share the trials and tribulations of taking piano lessons as kids and explore how making music has shaped us as we've developed. We then move on to discussing the powerful effect music has on emotion, how we use music in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and much, much more. We referenced Joe's recent interview with the musician John Hopkins. John Hopkins has created music specifically for use in psychedelic therapy, so if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I strongly encourage you do so. If you'd like to support the show, all you have to do is go to a place like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show, and give us a review and a rating. We really appreciate those of you that have done that. Uh, it makes us happy inside. So, without further ado, here is our conversation about music as medicine. And here we are. I got a question for you, yahoos. Are you uh, are you musical people? Like, did you grow up playing musical instruments?
1: All right. We're, we tried to have an awkward talk at the same time, but we didn't nail that one, did we, Joe? Do you want to start, or would you like me to? I did call you a Yahoo, but...
2: I, I, I always defer to you, Reed. You're just uh, way ahead of me on many things, so please go ahead.
1: But I always try to get out of it and end up with the, the baton somehow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I... Uh, I love music and consider it such an important part of life these days and it's it's really interesting to reflect on my journey there like both in creating and consuming but as a kid I took piano lessons but and I regret doing this I mean hindsight's 2020 20. I don't regret it cuz then I couldn't tell this story right now but mm. but I quit because people were making fun of me for going to piano lessons, which is so silly uh, to look back on, but so understandable uh, in our human condition and you know the developing egos we get uh, throughout life. But um, I love playing the piano and related instruments like the harmonium or whatever it may be, and and try to dabble with other instruments. I have a growing collection of crystal bowls and a gong and um all sorts of other things i know steve's been to a sound circle or two at my house um mm-hmm. but then later in life when my kids were coming of musical age like i think i had my oldest son and daughter were like 10 or 11 i took him into a music store i said pick something and you get lessons you get to learn it um trying to heal my past through them by proxy or whatever. But but then uh, my son picked cello, and uh, my daughter Amanda picked viola. And I actually decided, wait a second, I'm going to be taking children to lessons every week. I got myself a cello, and I started learning for the first year or so of my son Dallin's cello journey. I did lessons like right before him or after, and it was really neat. And then he passed me up and I, I quit that too. Not due to getting made fun of, but due to getting busy.
0: So you're saying Dallin didn't like ridicule you and like, dad, you suck. I'm way better than you. <laughs>
1: nope. No. And you've, you've baby. heard him play. You've played the cello too, Steve. You played his cello. I did. He was very generous.
0: letting me you play. Yeah. My, my musical journey, you know, my, my mom, it was really important to my mom that all of the children have some kind of contact with music. And she wanted, especially for us to have what she called the ensemble experience. She wanted us to play with others, uh, either in a choir or in an orchestra or a band or something like that. So all myself and all my siblings had exposure to music. Uh, I was like many kids who started piano lessons in that I was very resistant. So Fortunately, I didn't get made fun of, but, um, I just didn't want to go. I didn't want to play it. I didn't want to practice. It was, it was, it wasn't really intriguing to me. Uh, and then in fifth grade, I, my mom kind of forced me (laughs) because she wanted all the kids I said to have that ensemble experience to join the elementary school orchestra. And that's when I was exposed to the cello. So I played the cello all the way through to the end of high school, played in the high school Philharmonic orchestra. We got to play on tour at Disneyland. And then I decided I wanted to explore the voice and I joined the high school's choir. And, uh, in the choir, I got to actually sing at Carnegie hall in New York on the high school. Yeah. Choir choir tour, which was really, really cool. And I've just really loved singing. Yeah, man. I, I, I've loved music. I love singing. I love playing musical instruments. I tried my hand at the guitar for a while. And, um, Mm -hmm. lately after a psychedelic ceremony, I, I just, every time I go into non-ordinary consciousness spaces, almost every time I come out reminded how important music is to me. I, I get distance yeah. from music when I'm spending most of my transition time listening to podcasts instead of music or audio books or whatever. I remember in graduate school, um, one of my colleagues, one of my, uh, graduate school cohort friends, James Van Dyke, he was a musician, really good one he was asking me about music and I said something really silly in retrospect. I honestly don't know why I said it, but I said, uh, I don't listen to music anymore because it affects me too much. It's Hmm. like a hot knife through the butter of my ego. It just goes right to my soul. It's so evocative for me. And so finding music again in psychedelic ceremony has actually been really, really special for me. So I, um, I bought a, a flute, a native, american drone flute that i've been playing i have a wooden ocarina that i've been messing around with too um and every chance i get when i'm alone in the car i like to sing to show tunes so there's my confession about music
1: Steve, show tunes wait what was your email address in high school again steve Oh no, Uh, this was, (laughs) I was trying to think if it relates somehow, you know, not to to music. It (laughs) it just, it just
0: happens to be one of the most humiliating email addresses. Uh, Did I ever, did I mention it on the podcast? I might have, I think I did. Yeah,
1: I think so.
0: That's an Easter egg. People will have to go find,
1: I don't even remember what episode it was, but (laughs) it's a tangent. We don't want to follow today because we got to hear from Joe on his childhood musical escapades. Yeah.
2: Yeah, by far the most kind of neurotic, I think, of the of the trio here. Um, I played piano very seriously from about age four to fourteen or so. Um, competitively, I would go to competitions, be really really nervous, and try to like be better at playing Bach than the kid next to me, which is just so bizarre to me. <laughs> and then you know it, there was a bit of a kind of tyrannical atmosphere about it. Like I had to practice. I I like learned how to lie as a kid by mm. like playing around with the idea of telling my parents that I practiced when I actually didn't. Um, and the whole thing kind of fell apart when I was given even the most basic autonomy to like decide if I wanted to keep going or not. I was like, screw this, I want to go play hockey, which is what all Canadian kids want to do, I guess. <laughs> And, you know, it just kind of like ruined my relationship to playing music for a long time. It was really just to kind of tell my dad to F off because I was sick of all the pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really regret it. And of course, the irony is I got two little kids and, you know, in sort of the, in that generation, it's like, I don't want to be too, you know, rough or impose anything. And I was like, Hey, do you want to play piano? We'll get you a cool teacher and everything. And it was like, they were into it. And then like, there was no pressure or no real reason to do it. So they just don't do it anymore. (laughs) So it's like, not too tight, not too loose, still looking to find the right balance, I guess.
1: Yeah, you know, it reminds me of an Alan Watts quote, kind of your competitive piano playing. I'm just picturing you like, looking at the kid next to you trying to play faster or beat him and somehow because Alan Watts talks about, like, you don't, make music for the sake of getting to the end of it faster. He just points out the irony of it or else, uh, you know, people would go to concerts to hear just one crashing chord or the best conductors would be those who like get people there faster. But it's it's a silly thought because music is such an in-the-moment experience. Yeah, I got to
2: say, sorry, Steve, I'll just say I do – you know, play a little guitar. Some of the some of the learning I did at that age kind of stayed around. And even though I can just play, you know, a handful of chords in the guitar and like, you know, play along to Justin Bieber when my kids are listening to it, like it's still some of the most kind of meditative and grounding experiences I have. So I really, really do mm-hmm. appreciate whatever's left in there.
0: Yeah, I feel like I like that you said it's meditative because for me, when I am. When I'm playing music or even listening to music, if it's if I'm playing it well enough, certainly when I was like really practicing the cello a lot and playing as part of an orchestra, it was a flow state experience Mm -hmm. for me, like very much in the present moment. And and because of that, it was very, very pleasurable. Um, but uh there was something I want to say about Reed's Alan Watts quote this notion of like we don't play the music so we can get to the last note. We've talked a lot about journeys and the journey of life and the psychedelic journey. Um, in the past on the show, I've, I've used mountain climbing as a metaphor. That's something else I like to do. And, you know, if the point was to get at the top of the mountain, then I would find the easiest way to get up there. I'd hire a freaking helicopter to drop me off. And that might be interesting, but I don't necessarily climb mountains to be at the top. I climb mountains to climb the mountain, to go on the journey. And I love songs that take us or music that take us on a journey. Which is why I think to segue into kind of our, our topic about music as medicine, as healing, as evocative work, why it pairs so well with psychedelics. I've heard it said that, that music is you know, the wind in the sails of a psychedelic voyage. It's often why we pair music with psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy. The, the image of somebody with a blindfold on and headphones as they're doing something like ketamine-assisted therapy uh is now fairly commonplace it's like what people think about when they think about ketamine assisted therapy for a lot of people music is an essential tool
1: yeah and that wind in the sails quote uh uh credit goes to bruce poulter who you met mm. recently he, he he mentioned that in a mdma supervision session i had with him a couple of years ago and it just stuck with me it was a, a beautiful metaphor.
2: I
0: heard you say it and it made me think like, what are the adjectives we use to describe wind? And I wrote down a few like calm, steady, strong, stinging, Hmm. turbulent, swirling, whipping, brisk. I, I feel like all these adjectives could be used to describe a psychedelic experience too.
1: Yeah, and it's so fascinating to look at the different um, psychedelic medicines and traditions and see the differences in music. Even within like ayahuasca, you have the gentle Icaros carrying a prayer on these soothing waves or like the Shipibo chants going right to the core of the, of the work. Um, and I'm oversimplifying here, but even like I had a uh, – there's a, a friend who – traveled to photograph Iboga ceremonies in Gabon, in uh, Bwiti ceremonies, and uh, talked about how the music was this rapid, like 170 beats a minute um, tempo for the ceremony that it just strikes me as such a different experience in different cultures. um, And uh, also looking at how we do it here in you know, ketamine and psilocybin work and other studies, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. I've had the experience of music being, depending on the type of music, being like an auger. Let's just keep coming up with Flynn metaphors How about uh-huh. that. So, uh, especially music that, as you said, is repetitive. So in an ayahuasca ceremony, sometimes the ikaros, at least the ceremonies I've been part of, have been fairly repetitive. The same phrases, the same, and I don't understand the language, um, which I kind of prefer in, the, in those instances. And it's just, for me, the repetition is like this drill, yeah. this auger that's, that's helping me go deeper and deeper with every revolution. And I've also listened to other chants and drumming type music and other, uh, psychedelic ceremony. And, and I think it's the repetition, at least in this case, that helps me go really, really deep.
1: And what yes, you, you, Oh, go ahead, Joe. Okay. You can, you can go ahead and read if you want. Oh no, please. And maybe we'll even edit out my blunder. Nah,
0: I will arbitrate <laughs> and say, Joe, it's your turn.
2: You know, one of the things that's been curious for me about this is the fact that there is this tradition, uh, like from indigenous ceremony to have the kind of music you were just describing, Steve, or um, even in the modern kind of like psychedelic renaissance, um, you kind of have like the new age spiritual music that's very usually, you know, no lyrics and usually you know, chosen deliberately because it does not have any like reference to a specific culture and time and place. And I gotta be honest with you guys, I actually like going into some of my favorite like pop songs. Mm-hmm. And usually, it's their good quality pop songs, not like the cheesy stuff you would hear on Top Forty, but like stuff that has very particular associations uh, in my life, kind of like my autobiographical history or like the soundtrack of my life. And I like going back to that to work through something. But yeah. I, I sort of like. I feel like I'm kind of. It's like blasphemous to to like use, um, yeah, popular music in a context like that. What do y'all think?
1: Joe is so blasphemous because he uses lyrics in some of his psychedelic <laughs>
0: playlists. I know. <laughs> I, felt, I just felt the spirit left. Leave me, Joe. You're <laughs> blasphemy.
1: <laughs> you know, it's a fun debate though because music is sometimes called the hidden therapist, right? And, hmm. um. I can see the the beauty of both and it's a testament to me of this is really an individualized journey and there's no wrong or right answer. Like I can argue in favor of either no lyrics or lyrics you don't understand. So you can get your thinking mind out of it or ones that aren't tied to a time and place. So you can transcend time and place, but maybe you need to go through time and places to transcend that. Or maybe you mm-hmm. have healing work and that guides you there. Um, but uh, it reminds me of, when I did my yoga teacher training and back um many years ago with this teacher named Dharma Mitra in New York he he started out by giving us this mantra the mantra for purification and he said don't learn the meaning it will lose its power and mm. like don't even google it <laughs> and i thought that was really that was really interesting mm. I'm
0: with you Joe i i think um there have been times when i i love the non lyrical music uh, Reed, uh and I went to a couple concerts this week. One was East Forest and the other was uh, Trevor Hall. And these are two artists who are pretty popular among people who like altered states, put it that way. And you could tell by the, the set of characters that were <laughs> at these concerts. Um, but yeah, the... Um, Some of the, especially East's music was non-lyrical and meditative. And I talked to some people who were there who were sort of new to the scene and they were like, you know what? This is kind of boring. Mm It's boring music. But I'll tell you when I, I, when I meditate to East forest music or when I'm listening to it during psychedelic ceremony, um, it is not boring. And, Mm -hmm. uh, Trevor Hall, I'm newer to Reed, I think you've, you've been following him longer than I have, but, um, his music is more, has a message in it. And it's a message that um, a lot of his fans that I've talked to that has been really, really important for their healing journeys. Like his lyrics are poetic and they talk about self-love and healing and and that kind of thing that people relate to.
1: Yeah. And you know, those were, those were both really profound experiences and so different like the East forest um, ceremony was sponsored by numinous was really a special thing because we're all on our mats and there's almost this reverence or sacred container as you walk in just because people were going there not to have a mosh pit nothing wrong with that if that's what you're going to do um, but going to do some inward like list, deep listening and uh meditating on music and then the Trevor hall, like like you said steve he 's popular in the yoga community and and he his, a lot of his songs are love songs are about healing work, uh, you know love is just a reminder, find your center that was on a tapestry behind him and um, and he talks about uh, there 's one called Blue Sky Mind that I sent you and Joe earlier. It talks about going in and through the body and like a really poetic guy with uh, conscious relationships and writes in a language that strikes a chord with people um, on a path of like awakening healing um, interbeing and uh, and East Forest got his start by making music for friends in on mushrooms like in a basement or a garage and he even mentioned that when he came to Salt Lake City and he's just like he's blown away and touched by the people gathering to hear his hear him do this now you know one of the things that
2: i really think about more especially since interviewing john hopkins um is this piece about fit right and so in his case it was like this really really careful deliberate um pairing uh like of creating the music and then testing it uh after having taken some ketamine, just to like really get get the perfect fit of sound with that particular mind state and i sort of feel like um there's something interesting about that so like every drug might have its own i don't know um beat speed or whatever and certain kind of uh whether it's rhythm or certain certain kinds of melody and stuff and you know i i start to wonder is like as as guides or therapists here is it our job to create like the, the the perfect fit and i'm wondering what you all think about like actually djing your sessions like, oh i don't think this person you know really needs the song right now let's give them that song versus really just being open to like the moments where it fits and the moments where that fit breaks down um you yeah curious your impressions there because I, I i do maybe i'm a bit of a control freak a uh, little you know neurotic Jewish guy here, but I do like <laughs> to try to hit the right pace and the right thing based on the energy i 'm picking up in the room, but it might be a fool 's errand ultimately
1: do you want to start, Steve? Yeah, I
0: think you know i, I don 't feel like at least I know enough about each medicine to have confidence in designing a mm-hmm. playlist that fits the frequency of that medicine. That being said, that the maps training Paul Ui Uy- psychiatrists had put together sort of the sound experience for everybody in talking about this topic. And he's very careful. He kind of thinks of himself as sort of a psychedelic DJ Mm -hmm. and very careful and thoughtful about the way he constructs a playlist to match the arc of an experience. So, you know, there's different arcs to different medicine experiences, just how much time you're in medicine space, but how much time to peak, how long you're at plateau, how long the come down is, what it's like. And then, customizing that to the type of experience that maybe you want the person to have. So on the takeoff, or do you want music that is more evocative to sort of help them take off to help stir things up. And then at the peak, something that's more con- contemplative and then uh, as they're coming down, something more relaxing and, and recuperating. But that being said, what, what person a finds contemplative person B might find triggering so it's really hard to customize. And and you talked to John about wave Paths, which is mm-hmm. a program oh, wow. we've all used, um, which is, and I, I loved your sort of your back and forth with him about WavePaths. Because right. uh, I had sort of a similar opinion to you and, and um, thought it was great, but also found it a little inhuman.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What did you yeah. all think about this idea of like, that when you're listening to the music, you're kind of connecting with another human that has like thought about, processed, you know, expressed a particular emotional state or just something. And then you can kind of tap into it on the other end as opposed to this like AI mashup of a bunch of yeah. humans that did a bunch of stuff.
1: That's interesting. I haven't thought of that. Like sitting in ceremony, I've had more experiences of just like becoming part of the music or feeling it from every. Yes like Adam in my existence. Um, and, and not like just losing track of someone actually made this in their home. (laughs) Uh, Uh but, but it's fascinating to think about. Um, but I like your question, Joe, because, uh, like I see it, like it was really familiar to me to come into working with maps on, uh, their eating disorder study for a while where there was a lot of talk of the playlist and I got to see uh, what went into their uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy playlist where they have an opening, an active part, an inner exploration, and then down to like peace and returning. And, no, Mendel Kalin and uh, WavePaths have a similar arc and there is an arc of a journey that I think you want to, honor without controlling over controlling and same with someone's experience like i've had plenty of people having a difficult experience that i suspect might be tied to a song and i want to go in and skip it for them but i have to yes withhold that urge except sometimes like in checking in like in rare instances we've had to figure out okay let's change this together oh but a a couple times like even with the maps playlist once there was someone who was like, "What the hell is that song?" And I was like, "Okay, you're right. I think it's a little weird. We're skipping." Um, but there was like <laughs> on ketamine, someone came out of their session once. They're like, "What is this?" It was like opera that came on amidst classical, and they were so surprised it distracted them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was. I worked. I worked at a in a, a session once where my co-therapist had really carefully curated the the playlist. And the the client would just sort of take his blindfold off and say, how did you know? How did you know to put this song at this point in my journey? Like this, he said it like three or four times during this long journey, just this is, this is so serendipitous. It's creeping me out. Like, how did you know this is what I needed?
1: Synchronicities.
2: I have had a similar experience. You know, I wonder what you guys think is going on. Um, You talked read about like, feeling the music permeate every atom of your body. Um, when I listened to John Hopkins' album, Music for Psychedelic Therapy, during a training session I did with ketamine, there were, part of the time I thought the music was coming from the ketamine. Mm. And I don't know what kind yeah. of weird world I was in, but something really interesting is happening there kind of neurobiologically or something.
1: What, what,
2: I don't know, Reed, <laughs> if you about the brain here, we're just blasted off to another planet, but what is that?
1: Yeah, it's fun to try and talk about it. It's as ineffable as the psychedelic experience itself. But there are studies. I find them fascinating. Like there have been studies with LSD, with psilocybin, um, like psilocybin showing enhanced significance and beauty and appreciation of music and um, increased likelihood of occasioning a mystical experience. There, There was this LSD study. This is a while ago. I think probably in Europe or somewhere. But um, people who took LSD, not surprisingly, were much more likely to rate music as being transcendental and wondrous and powerful. And like I, I'm laughing at the way I even described that music experience is like a an item on the mystical experience questionnaire um, itself. But uh, music really is kind of the wind in the sails and. Uh, a psychedelic um, portal of itself that people use in like a drum circle to enter a trance of oneness or chanting in India over and over until they are one with the word and one, you know, no longer humans chanting, you know, they are, they are like all God singing to her himself or whatever you want to call it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Joe, I was thinking about your question, it reminded me of this video I saw where somebody plugged a synthesizer into mushrooms. And like uh-huh. they've got these leads, brilliant, just jammed into the cap of these mushrooms and it's like I don't know if this is a complete bullcrap, but it's like producing musical sounds. Um it's just like one of the things hippies do when they're high, I guess. Um <laughs> <laughs> but it may, cause like you said, John sort of divine the music from his ketamine journey and he used the ketamine yeah. experience to like fine tune, like, Oh, this isn't right. So maybe he just synced it up perfectly with whatever wavelength that chemical puts us in when, when it's in our bloodstream.
2: I mean, it was totally uncanny. Um, but yeah, there may be some kind of, you know, dissolution or distortion in my sense of self or, I don't know where the sounds coming from. It, it literally felt like I had taken this, you know, this molecule circulating in my brain, and the music was coming out of that. Hmm. So, anyway, uh, I guess that, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, as mysterious as the journey itself. So, yes, right. go ahead, read. So, John, I want to ask John, like, have you tested it though with ayahuasca, and how about Ooh. how about mescaline? And and I'm just teasing, but it's it's I love that he did that because yeah. it is. A non-ordinary state um, and each medicine does seem to have its unique yes. channel of consciousness um, not to say that music for psilocybin wouldn't play well in ayahuasca ceremony but you know it definitely um, impacts the experience and I love that you know that what he shared of going into a ketamine space I mean oh that wasn't right I thought it yeah. was before and go in and tweak it I think that's uh, that's really how you'd need to do it to succeed at yeah. bringing in like um, the right kind of experience into the ketamine room, for example. Yeah. So have you all had
2: um, the other example he gave a fit like that was MDMA and, like dancing. Have you had that fit kind of experience with other molecules in other contexts?
0: Um, I, I can tell you that, uh, depending on what molecule is in my bloodstream and affecting my nervous system, I am more or less likely to perform certain dance moves
1: um, <laughs> and dose matters. A, a cryptic way of saying that, <laughs> you know, there's this guy named, uh, Kalindi IE who passed away, uh, really it's really sad cuz he he died of covid a couple of years ago but he was a south african explorer and martial arts teacher who would take 25 to 50 or more grams dried grams of mushrooms wow. and when people talk about like a mushroom ceremony and like the music he just laughs or he's like Set and setting doesn't matter when you're on 25 grams of mushrooms nor does the playlist like there is no music in that realm. Um or it's not uh coming out of your Bluetooth speaker. You know?
0: (laughs) Channeling from a different dimension for sure. Oh yeah. But I've been oh go ahead Steve. Well I was going to circle back to an earlier point. So if you want to keep going on that one.
1: I was just gonna say that dose on the dose matters point. Um I've been in an ayahuasca ceremony with Steve once once upon a time where he was dancing and I was like stuck in my mat in meditative position as much as I might've wanted to dance. Mm -hmm. Um, it, uh, not that we even know like dose was it dose related or not, but like individual experience related. Certainly.
0: Yeah. It was definitely Mm -hmm. Steve Thayer related because I cannot, cannot not dance for whatever reason. At one point, I was the only person up there moving around water bending and doing Tai Chi that I don't know how to do. Mm and it was blissful. It was wonderful. It was exactly what what I needed in the moment. Um, You looked good, Steve. Well, that's what I wanted to hear. (laughs) Fishing for that compliment. Uh Um, But yeah, I was thinking of uh, sort of feeling it in every molecule. At the Trevor Hall concert last night, I just decided to close my eyes. There wasn't a whole lot going on visually. He had some cool spotlights and stuff, but it wasn't like an EDM laser show. So I just sort of closed my eyes and let the colors and lights dance in the sort of black space of my feel the vision with my eyes closed. And I and I tried to feel the music instead of just like listening to the music, just feel it in every part of my body. And I had that sensation of drinking it in through my pores. It was so mm-hmm. cool of just letting the music affect me all the way to my core and that sort of this immediate present state. And it was making me think of your question earlier, Joe, about pop music. Um like do we really mm-hmm. need to listen to this particular kind of music? Can we visit our favorite pop songs? And I'm an unapologetic Imagine Dragons fan. And uh, one time in a psychedelic experience, I was listening to this song, Nothing Left to Say, and then it bleeds into their song, Rocks. And um, I had the thought as it's sort of drilling me down into my shadow realm, like, oh, this is what Dan Reynolds means, like in a way yeah. that I didn't appreciate before. Like, I, I, could, I could perceive the music with such emotional accuracy that it was a different song
2: real or illusory. It felt very real.
0: I mean, it. it's it, that one... not
2: the question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I think, uh, yeah, it's real as far as I'm concerned.
1: Steve, mm-hmm. your feelings are valid here.
0: Again, <laughs> well, I'm hearing, love, I'm, hearing things, I'm hearing all the things I'm hearing all the things I need to hear.
1: <laughs> so how about this, uh, for, uh, a random quote intermission from Pythagoras is like what 500 BC. There is geometry in the humming of the strings. There is music in the spacing of the spheres. Whatever that means, it sounds pretty cool.
0: I feel like uh-huh. I feel it's like spacing you of the, <laughs> yeah spacing of the spheres. I think is a. I'm looking at my Spotify now. I think that's a oh, Coldplay album or something. It's
1: Coldplay. It? Music of the Spheres is there. I have the record at home. Oh, okay. uh, it's a pretty one. And they, there's a book even on, on uh, the neuroscience of music called The Music of the Spheres. Mm. But I love that. Uh, I like to make sure Pythagoras gets credit for that, uh, that little phrase.
0: Yeah, give Pythagoras his just desserts. I know, he'd be pissed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Read, what, uh, what does that quote mean
1: to you? You know... Um, it makes me think of a lot of things like the closed-eye visual experience on a high dose of psilocybin, you know, the music-influenced, like music, um, like a geometric kaleidoscope following the music, or DMT, whether it's ayahuasca or inhaled N,N-DMT or 5-MeO-DMT. And we'll be working with DMT probably in both forms next year in, clin- in research clinic um cool. that 'll be fascinating but but the the medicines and their like the visual geometry of music is fascinating but then uh like in the ayahuasca world, you have um, the artwork even by some of the indigenous peoples displays I have a tapestry. That shows these like waving geometric lines showing how the music travels through the air and through our souls to help us heal and and has messages on it. And um, so, yeah, that quote means uh, means a lot of like I could uh, I could ramble on probably forever about the possible things it might mean to me even.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of the uh, the speakers. Have you ever seen people put like sand on speakers. Um mm. and then they'll play certain, you know, musical wavelengths and they perform pretty consistent geometric patterns. it's all it's all math once you get down to the, the bare bones.
2: Which is so wild because um maybe in the deep structure it's math and there's regularity and pattern. But uh when music touches you deeply it's very emotional, right? And we tend to kind of Dissociate that kind of structure piece from the non-linear, kind of chaotic experience of emotions. Um, maybe it's the the structure that plays that pulls on the heartstrings uh, of our emotions. But yeah, you don't think about the math when you're crying because of a beautiful song, right?
1: You know what you said to you and John in that episode talked about with uh, I th- I think you were talking about. Um or maybe I'm maybe I'm making it up, but the uh the sadness and joy yes. um kind of coexisting and like I sad love beauty. Yeah, sad beauty. Yeah. Sad beauty because like Steve and I have been talking about this book called Bittersweet about melancholy, and that sent me down a rabbit hole of like reading some studies, like what is going on? Um and like they found this this there's a study that showed that listening to sad music releases prolactin like a chemical um that in the cascade could help you curb grief you know in some ways so it's like like you can get this like certain cocktail of neurotransmitters released by music um whether it's like dopamine to make you get up and dance or uh some other thing to soothe uh like some sadness you're holding do you experience the
2: sad beauty thing? That's like a a regular thing for me, and it, it's it's really interesting. and also kind of confusing. Um, do you have what, what's your take on this, you guys?
1: Yeah, you want to jump in,
0: Steve? Yeah, um, I regularly experience that sort of bittersweet, sad beauty thing. I, I, maybe it's a holdover from growing up with depression. You know, I I, I struggle with depression as a teenager. Um, and I found a lot of comfort in like, uh, turning up the volume on my sadness with music, you know, it's fairly stereotypical for a brooding teenager to listen to brooding music, but
2: yes. But what is it that's, that's reassuring or why do you crave that in that mood state? Do you know? I can speak for myself. I want to feel like
0: I want to feel what I'm feeling. And if I'm having trouble connecting with what I'm feeling, like I described before, music is that hot knife through butter for me, which is why I think I got a little nervous about it when I was entering my college years and trying to get quote unquote serious about my academics. Like I can't be listening to the things that make me feel my emotions. I'm trying to become a psychologist. And of course the, (laughs) the irony was not, uh, was lost on me early in my, early in my career. But I remember, I remember listening to a friend of ours play a song at the end of an ayahuasca ceremony, you know, his cover of this song unfolding, And of course, just really hit me hard in ayahuasca space. But then I decided to listen to the song a month or two later after I dropped my kids off at school and I burst Mm -hmm. into tears, just, I mean, and it kind of connected to me, (laughs) connected me to the the death of my father. I was just thinking about my dad. Mm, I was thinking about all the struggles that I've had to become the father I want to be. So the timing of like dropping my kids off and then listening to the song, thinking of our friend playing it for us. Yeah, it just
2: blew me up, and I loved every tear. I'm very aware of those moments where, in a certain mood, that sad music is like exactly what I need, and it helps kind of open and express and work through something. But then it can kind of cross a threshold where it's like actually keeping me stuck. It's like it's like a kind of form of rumination. I need to actually move on and put something a little more upbeat on. Um, I don't know know if it's a tension that came up for you, but that's been always a bit tricky for me.
1: Yeah, I kind of, I I love the emotionality of like music and even the chord progressions within a song because like people oversimplify Mm -hmm. it. And I think it's helpful to do that uh, in these contexts, like minor chords are sad, major chords are happy, right? And then there are tempos and beats that are, like slower and faster, like some you you that make you want to move. Like we all experience that. Some song we just find ourselves bump bouncing around on the chair. Or Steve's all of a sudden twerking over there in his office. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, but it's really neat that like some of the great musicians, like Baroque era, is a cl- uh, a classic time. What was that? Sixteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds, where they would make songs specifically to bring up an emotion like they'd be mm-hmm. like i got a sad one for you guys and bring out like a hundred cellos and play on these these minor chords or i've got the i've got the waltz the most epic waltz music you've ever heard um but he rewind even to like ancient greece long before them you had uh when we thought Uh, depression and things were caused by evil humors and bile in the body, they would play music to those evil humors to calm it. You know, that was their therapy music of the time.
0: Yeah. That's so fascinating to me that there are certain sounds that course, that correlate with certain human emotions fairly reliably, like the minor chord thing or certain chord progressions that make us nervous. Like there's a reason that the music you hear in most, Scary movies is pretty similar, or the music you hear in a lot of the superhero movies is triumphant trumpets and stuff. There are certain types of music that evoke certain types of emotions. It's why Tony Robbins, when he's doing his his thing, plays music at certain points in his speeches or when he's working with somebody to sort of bring the crowd along and help this person encounter their insight with emotional with an emotional wave. He's deliberately using music to, I'll say manipulate uh the, the people he's working with in a but you in know in, in their favor to help promote insight
1: or like in creepy musics uh for soundtrack in a movie i mean like swap it out with ridiculously happy music and and you've just well, you've just ruined the movie or changed it completely um but no it's uh it's so fascinating I mean, and sometimes it hits you uh unexpectedly, like when you're driving listening to that song, or there's some songs that just I've like bookmarked through life as that, that tugged at my heartstrings in a way I was not expecting. And, and it can be a really useful portal to go there. And like Joe said, you don't want to stay there, but thankfully Mm -hmm. we have other, other uh, genres and, and tempos and chord progressions we can bust out. And that's where it gets really, um, complicated in the psychedelic therapy room, and why I like to look at it with, like, to try and not overcontrol or overimpose, but but honor the arc of the experience, and and most of all, getting out of the way of the medicine for each individual. You know?
0: Yeah, and I think using music, maybe when you you notice that you are in that ruminative state, you know, just like we talked about with psychedelic medicine, switch the song. I love being at concerts, like the one we were talking about, um, Trevor Hall's, I love a a set list that takes you on an up and down journey, right? They'll have a song that's sort of a, it's a love song. It's slow. I'm watching all these couples hug and rock back and forth. And, and then there's something upbeat. And then there's something that is rising with a huge bass beat drop or whatever. And the crowd's freaking out and jumping around and then, all right, let's bring the energy down. You can orchestrate the energy of a room with the type of music you play. You could probably do the same on your own in your bedroom with your Discman?
2: You know, um, obviously the the power of emotion, of music to evoke emotion is, uh, you know, very evident in what we've been exploring here. I think there's also other layers, like, um, I guess I can come out of the closet. I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan. Um, And part of what I think is cool about their stuff is like the, not just the emotional arcs, but also the arcs of like, order and chaos, right? It's just like crazy, weird, spacey jam. What the hell's going on? Feeling lost, feeling disoriented, and then landing in some really catchy, like, country tune, um, I think is also super, I mean, relevant for the psychedelic experience and just um, that like navigating the falling apart and coming together that is the rhythm of life. I don't know if that's been part of your experience as well. No Grateful Dead fans in the audience. No, here. I,
1: <laughs> I find it. I find it the history of uh, of music and uh, the psychedelic renaissance um, is a really fun rabbit hole, and um, not just listening, but the music videos that like Pink Floyd has, and um, and it is. I think we shy away in our field, understandably, from the like the difficulty of the experience like uh, we want to make sure it's a nicely controlled set and setting but um but there's a lot to be said about the chaos moments or um like i think uh that kundalini class yoga class you went to with me steve once did they bust out a gong they did have a gong for that one Mm -hmm. and uh those gongs can be uh can feel like uh a trains running through the room can be jarring for some people and it's i was in an ayahuasca ceremony once where there was a sound bath with a gong and it was profound but it almost brought up every scary thing i've ever seen in my life and as long as i could get out of the way and not fight that and let it move through me it was like so profound and what's on the other side of that was beautiful but i think uh Yeah, I think there's such a fascinating place for all these types of music, um, both, uh, you know, in the psychedelic experience and how, um, you know, it's been a part of the Renaissance and part of uh, the journey for these musicians, too.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like often what's worth knowing is on the other side of chaos. So music sort of pendulating in and out of chaos mimics how we learn and grow in life. I I had an encounter with a gong as well in a breathwork ceremony (laughs) where, you know, I think I told this on the podcast before, but it's, I'm doing holotropic breathwork and we're, you know, we're like 45 minutes in, I've got full lobster claws. You know, I don't even know if I'm here or there. And the facilitator says, okay, it's a group of like 40 men. I want you to on the count of three, yell as loud as you can. We're going to get rid of all your negative energy, whatever. I I can't remember exactly what she said. I understood the instructions though. So she's like one, two, three. And then she hits this gong that is literally like 10 by 10. It is huge feet, 10 feet. It's like the size of the entire wall. And I disappeared. I think I was yelling, but I, I entered full like DMT space it was wild, but I don't know that that would have happened without the gong because I had done plenty of yelling during the ceremony itself. So just whatever happened, whatever sound waves entered my nervous system,
2: took me to
1: you know, Valhalla.
2: Do
1: you have, do you, have you guys heard the uh, story of how the Beatles were first introduced to LSD, by the way? Mm-mm. Do you share?
2: I don't think I've heard that.
1: That uh, it's kind of it's kind of wild because this is like mid '60s, um, where they went to their celebrity dentist friend's house. They didn't know him that well, but like uh, house for a dinner party, and he dosed them without them knowing in their coffee. Put LSD in their coffee. I think probably because they'd had conversations, just weren't open to it at the time. And at first, they were like, "How dare you do this to us?" His dentist name was like I think John. John Riley Um, and uh, they were so pissed, but then, uh, but then they're like, okay, well, we're going to a club anyway, let's go, let's do this. And uh, it sounds like a Albert Hoffman bicycle day experience. Like they think the club is uh, on fire or the elevator It's like a, a horror film, but then they go to a a friend's house and it's like, they're in this magical submarine that they can captain around um and of course like well it was a profound uh night that changed the course their music and their lives and they proceeded to take lsd and have it influence their music over and over and i I even heard they like buried a stash of it in their in their yard so they'd always have some available until their their yoga guru in india said no more you're done and then they stopped yeah
0: Hmm. yeah it's not hard to to see why psychedelics have influenced influenced so many musical artists, visual artists too. But like when you, when you experience music in a psychedelic mind state, it's a different kind of thing, different kind of experience. Like, like we've been talking about. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, is there anything else related to music, music as medicine, music and psychedelic therapy that you think is relevant here?
1: Well, I love your, uh, a story about jogging to John Hopkins East Forest, sit around the fire, and having a, a profound experience on a country jog. I thought that was a really neat story you shared, Joe, and and that happens to be a really uh, special song to me as well. That uh, that I've listened to so many times in so many settings, and that East Forest played a special rendition of as his final song at the Salt Lake City. A ceremony concert it was really neat
2: right on yeah that that song really kind of went straight into my feels um and i don't know what it if it's just how beautifully crafted the music is and how amazing that uh kind of lecture was that ramdas gave but um yeah i was just fascinated by the idea that i wonder if i can check in with you on this the the last kind of lyrics there are about um, that you know we're all sitting around the fire. I'm gonna butcher this, okay? But just bear with me. Um, but the fire kind of uh, kind of goes out, and we're kind of stuck with with the ashes. We're kind of overwhelmed by the ashes Ooh. in a way these days. But there's you know just a little ember left, mm. and our kind of job as humans is to kind of like find this ember and blow on the ember and cultivate this fire. Till we can once again come together and sit around the fire. So I asked John. I'd love to ask you, what's the ember for you? What's the fire for you?
1: I like what John said, and I would probably, honestly, say something very similar of, of like, our divine essence, like your true self that we've, like, buried and conditioned and lost touch with, the, the God within. Um, However you want to say it and that brings up another related point we were talking earlier about lyrics or no lyrics some lyrics are accessible to multiple um, walks yeah. of life and religions and spiritual beliefs and Ram Dass was a master at that of opening minds without ostracizing or um, like he, he brought a lot of people into this like this state of openness and acceptance and and so I think that's an example of how you can take it and interpret it in through your own lens and it's beautiful
0: <laughs> yeah it's similar similar thoughts about what the ember is you know for me it's the reminder that um nothing matters because everything matters everything matters because nothing matters that that the divine within really means that we are all connected we're all one and so if we're all carrying our embers around sort of keeping them alight Um, it's a reminder that when we're back, you know, it's just more fire that we contribute to Mm -hmm. the fire and and it's the piece of us that isn't separate from the other. These are sometimes esoteric, but I I think even, even, I don't know, I could go on a whole tangent about, about spirituality. We talked a lot about it on the podcast, but, um, I grew up very spiritual and religious and then departed from that and have been returning to a version of spirituality that feels more. Um, authentic, I guess, feels truer to me. And it is constructed of these ideas that we're all one.
1: Mm -hmm. And in the, in the song, that's what the lyrics say. It's like at the end of it, it's like, that's what we're here to celebrate that we've lived our life totally like in the world. We know that we're of the spirit and the ember gets stronger and stronger um, and pretty soon you realize that that's what we're doing for eternity is sitting around the fire.
2: yeah, there's something really um, like communal about sitting around the fire that's that's yeah. kind of what it what it really what spoke to me, and kind of this i I kind of left there with a sense of like i don't know almost like a cosmic joke kind of thing, like how crazy it is with these like bipedal mammals with these crazy brains and these vocal cords that allow us to like move our lips and like say all these sounds and understand these complex ideas. And it's like, huh, there you are. Here I am. This is freaking hilarious. (laughs) Can we have a good time? And you know, when things go South, when, when we're having a rough time with something and it's like, yeah, it's not as fun, but like, can you still find that smile and that sense of humor um, to just enjoy sitting around the fire together? That's kind of, that kind of gave me the chills as I was contemplating that on that country, that run on the country road. So yeah, and I, I totally agree with you that it. um, it's 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 deep and rich and and uh, much interpretation. It's like a, open to a lot of interpretation that's uh, has its own very deep meaning itself. So yeah, beautiful, beautiful
1: stuff. Well, it's been fun. I was going to
0: say that I think that's that's where we end it. That was well said, Joe. I really appreciate the conversation, gentlemen. Um, Likewise. Yeah. So if 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 you haven't listened to Joe's interview with John Hopkins yet, make sure you dive into our archives. It shouldn't take you too long. I think it's the episode that will come out uh, right before this one. So take a listen to that one. But uh, yeah, until next time,
2: guys.
1: I'll talk to you soon.
2: Take care, guys. Thanks.
0: Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel, like the videos, and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit Numinous.com forward slash training. That's Numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.